referring to a book I'm sure many of you are familiar with. In fact, a lot of you will have this book uh, on a coffee table at home right now. And that book is Children's Letters to God. Now, this book is kind of, oh, yes, I'm supposed to dismiss the kindergartners and first graders. Knew I would forget that. I wrote it right here, dismiss in giant letters. Um, But anyways, this book is a compilation of letters that children have written to God. And these letters, um, if you read them, they show a picture of what the author thinks about who God is and what he's like. And so take Mickey, for example. He writes a letter that says, God, if you watch in church on Sunday, I'll show you my new shoes. So I like Mickey's zeal, but he sort of has this picture that, you know, God's at church, but he's not really maybe a part of the rest of his life. Or there's Raphael who says, God, if you give me a genie lamp like Aladdin, I will give you anything you want except my money or my chest set. So Raphael has this picture of God as someone that you can kind of bargain with. And Raphael seems a little more interested in the gifts rather than the giver. Sarah writes, hey, is it God, is it true that dad won't go to heaven if he uses his bowling words in the house? (laughs) So Sarah has been given this picture of God that you need to be a good little boy or girl. And there are some things that uh, God won't tolerate. So watch out. Last one, Joyce writes, Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. (laughs) So Joyce apparently has this picture of God. I don't think he quite understands me. Um, He doesn't understand. I know what I needed, and he's given me something else. And so those are cute. They, They tell us probably more about the child than they do in actuality about God. But I wonder if I could take your prayers the prayers that you most recently prayed, and if I could read them out, what picture of God would it show us? And see, this is so important because what comes into our minds when we think about our Heavenly Father, it's the most important thing about us because it controls every aspect of how we live. I mean, I can remember the first time I heard the glorious gospel of God's grace, that God loves me, that he sent his son to die for me. I was so moved by that, and my heart was warmed. And then somewhere, this idea crept into my picture of God that if I worked a little bit harder, he would love me just a little bit more. And I didn't realize that that probably infected in some subconscious way even the message that I preached, that I wanted you to know the glorious gospel of God's love. And I wanted you to I wanted to help you live for him. Because if you worked hard, he might love you just a little bit more. That's not the right picture. Maybe your picture is on the other end of the spectrum and that when you picture God, you imagine an imposing figure. And when you look at his face, the expression on his face is one of disapproval, disdain, disgust. Because of some failure in your life, some event in your past, some sin that you're wrestling with. That's not the right picture either. So what is? Well, here in Luke 15, Jesus is speaking to two groups of people. 
He's speaking to the bad people, the tax collectors and the sinners. And he's speaking to the really religiously good people, the scribes and the Pharisees. And the tax collectors and sinners, they probably have all manner of undefined and ill-defined pictures of who God is and what he's like. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they know exactly what God is like. They've got them all figured out, or so they think. But neither one has the right picture, neither group. And so in response, Jesus tells a story and gives us the true picture. And we must adopt this picture of God. Because our picture of God controls how we live. So what does Jesus' picture reveal? Here's what we're going to be talking about today. If you're a note taker, here's the three points you need to write down. Jesus' picture reveals a father who removes obstacles for his children. It reveals a father who restores relationship with his children. And a father who relinquishes his rights. On behalf of his children. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So Jesus', is, Jesus his picture reveals a father who removes obstacles between him and his children. As you read the first part of this parable in Luke 15, there are two major obstacles between the father and the younger brother. One is probably obvious, one not so much. You've got the younger brother's sin And you've got the law. You see, his son's sin and Jewish law were major obstacles between the father and the son. So how does the father deal with this? Well, his love overcomes sin. I mean, let's consider the the picture of this younger brother for a moment. The younger brother is a picture of sin and rebellion. Verse 12, he comes to his father. Our first introduction to him, and he says to his father... Give me the share of property that's coming to me. You know my inheritance, Dad? I want that now. You know that thing I normally get when you die? I want that now. Translation, I wish you were dead. Because he'd rather have the gifts than the giver. And he's looking at these father's gifts as if they were debts owed to him. A little later on in the passage when he speaks to his father and he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Well, this is back in the era when he felt like he was worthy. He was entitled to these things. And what is the father's response to his son's disgraceful rejection and rebellion? Well, the father doesn't accentuate the break in relationship by reacting to his son's sin. But the father permits him to leave. And then runs to embrace him when he returns. Despite his son's sin, the father's love overcomes. Do you see how this picture of the heavenly father would have stirred the hearts of the tax collectors and sinners? Who were daring to hope beyond all hope. That God might be able to overcome their sin. In addition The Father's love overcomes the law. You see, you may not be aware of this, but we have a real problem here. Any scribe or Pharisee worth his salt would have been hearing the story about the younger brother, and they would have immediately thought of one thing and one thing only. Deuteronomy 21, right? 
I mean, that's the first thing that would have come to their mind, because in Deuteronomy 21, 18, the law tells us in clear detail what should be done with this type of son. The law clearly says if parents have a son who is openly rebellious, a son who the community knows as a glutton and a drunkard, then he should be taken outside of the city and stoned to death. So when the son returns and he's embraced by the father, the Pharisees would have been outraged. They would have thought this father should have the son stoned. That's what the law says. This father is a lawbreaker. But what they couldn't see was that the father is not a lawbreaker, but the father is the lawmaker. That someone greater than Moses was standing right before them, trying to correct their picture of God and beginning to show them that salvation does not come through the law because the law cannot redeem. But the lawgiver can I mean, you can imagine a scene if you, if you were to walk into a courtroom and you open the door and there before you, you see the judge kind of sitting up behind the bench. And just as you've walked in, he's banging his gavel down, pronouncing the verdict of this case. That there's a young man who's guilty of embezzling money and there is a hefty fine attached to the penalty. And then you look over at the young man, this kind of disheveled reprobate. And his head is tilted down and shame and rejection is he's sitting there having to endure that verdict. And then the unexpected happens. You see the judge stand up and walk from behind his bench and come down and take off his robe and say to him, son, I'm so glad that you came back and I'm going to pay the fine. I'm going to say because the defendant was the judge's son. I'm going to pay the fine. And guess what? We're going to go out tonight and we're going to bring all your friends and we're going to celebrate because we're together again. You see, that father, there was an obstacle there of his son's sin and rebellion. But the father has moved towards him. His love has overcome it. There was an obstacle of the law. A fine needed to be paid. But the father pays it. Our Heavenly Father is like that. And this is good news because all sons of Adam and all daughters of Eve are rebels. And I know you may think, well, you know, ease up. I've never run from God to a distant country and I've never demanded my rights from him. But I wonder, you know, have you ever lost your health temporarily due to sickness or due to an injury and been mad at God? I mean, I have, because that reveals, I was mad at God because I felt entitled to those things. I felt like that was owed to me. You know, we just sang, you give and take away, and my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. That was hard for me to say. Because so oftentimes I feel like, no, I'm entitled to those things. I mean, think about all the gifts that we've been given, our health, our talents, our bodies, the family you were born into, the time and place that you were born. These things that that we've never earned, but we feel entitled to. You know, maybe God's given you a a sharp mind 
and um, an ability to be edu- well-educated and articulate. And I wonder if uh, you've ever used your mouth and your mind to manipulate someone or try to win someone's approval or win their favor. Because when you've done that, you've taken the gifts and you've ignored the giver, just like the younger son. But the good news is that the father's love has overcome that sin. And what about the law? Well, just a few chapters later in Luke, that death penalty that we just talked about from Deuteronomy 21, well, it gets carried out. That's why there's no longer any condemnation in Christ. Because he was the one who was taken outside of the village on your behalf and executed. He took the rocks, metaphorically speaking, of scorn and shame and guilt that you and I deserved every last hit for your rebellion and mine. For every drunken, gluttonous, self-centered, rebellious act, the debt has been paid. You see, the law wasn't circumvented. Christ wasn't going around the law. He fulfilled it. That's the gospel. That's why we sing how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. We sing that because this father takes the initiative to remove the obstacles of sin and the law that come between him and his children. The father also restores relationship with his children. That's the second point. You see, the gospel has to be worked out in the context of relationship. Only in a relationship with his children can the father give them what they need the very most. In this picture, the father offers his child two things, dignity and identity. So first, the father offers his son dignity. I mean, there's a lot of other things he could have offered that wayward son when the wayward son comes back home. You know, maybe a, uh, a cup of guilt, truckload of shame, a barrel full of steely, cold-hearted bitterness, I mean, those are more along the lines of things that we might expect. Or maybe I'm just revealing things about my own heart. But this father is not like that. This father who was previously robbed of his dignity by the son gives him dignity all the more. Just like we just sang, when our hearts were far away from him, his love went farther still. He runs to him, embraces him. And kisses him. This father is communicating. or Jesus is communicating a crystal clear message to this audience about the father. And this is what it is. Your dignity is not based on your merit. I'm restoring your dignity. Not because you deserve it. But because you're my son. Secondly, the father offers him, offers his son identity. Bring out the best robe. Put it on him. Yeah, the robe that distinguishes us and our family. Bring out the the ring. Put it on his hand. The ring with our crest on it. The one that says, you belong here. Bring out shoes. Put shoes on his feet. 
That's not because the father wanted him to have a comfy walk for the last 200 yards. It's because in that culture, servants went barefoot. Children wore shoes. He's saying, you're my son. And then the father uses the word that the younger brother thought he may never hear again. My son, my son was lost. Now it's found. My son who is dead is alive. And the son begins to speak in these vocational terms. You know, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Let me just work for you as one of your hired servants. And the father won't have any of it. In fact, I, I, as I read the story, I picture the father embracing the son and just kind of covering his mouth before he can get that part out. Because the son doesn't even get that part out the second time. Let me work as one of your hired servants. I think this is a sign of penitence in the son. Like the tax collector in the church. You know, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Like blind Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me. I think it's a cry for mercy. But the father doesn't speak in vocational terms. Okay, you can work for me. No, he speaks only in relational terms. Terms that cannot be earned. You can't earn your identity. It's given. So here's the illustration here. I mean, do you think the son can really earn his dignity and his identity back? So if you can picture, I have a four-year-old son named Sam. So if you could just picture us in our home, and Sam starts to play with some matches. And I say, Sam, don't play with matches. They're dangerous. And I walk outside of the garage. And then Sam uh, goes on to play with the matches. Why? Because they're dangerous. And kind of in spite of me, says, I'm lighting these suckers up anyway. And so, boom, he lights them up. Ah, fire. Throws it in the trash can. It's like, I'm done with that. Well, the trash can catches on fire. Sam runs out of the house. No one else is in the house, but the house burns down. <clears throat> and so now there's what's left is a pile of ashes, Dad and Sam. I'm not going to lie to you that there would be a little bit of an issue in our relationship at that point. Okay. And my guess is, and knowing Sam, too, that Sam would be feeling a tremendous, overwhelming amount of guilt and shame at that point. And it would be easy for me to accentuate that. You fool. I told you. But what he would need more than anything else is for me to say, I love you. And this, our relationship, is more important than that. He would need me to restore his dignity. And it would be preposterous to think of Sam, four years old, saying, no, 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 Dad, I've got it. I'm going to go, I'm going to make this up to you because I'm going to go get a job at McDonald's and I'm going to earn some money and I'm going to pay back everything that I owe. I mean, he can't even reach the drive through you know. Here's your milkshake. You know, I mean, that's... That's not going to work. He cannot earn it back. His identity has to be given to him. Son. So what is this audience learning from this picture of God that Jesus is painting? Well, one thing they're learning is that sinners 
are welcome to come home to their heavenly father. And when they do, they will find uh, his arms open. They will find an embrace, not a scowl. Though guilty and deserving punishment, though dirty and in need of cleansing, the younger brother finds the arms of the father open. So quick heart check here. Would your attitude towards non-Christians portray that picture of the heavenly father? That he's a father who bestows dignity on the undeserving? That he's a father that restores identity and restores relationship? A relationship that's not based on merit? You see, what Jesus is communicating in this parable is that the penitent man who recognizes that he has no right to be called son, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy. A son that recognizes he has no right to be called a son because of his sin. Well, surprise, here's the twist. That actually indicates that you are indeed a child of God. That reveals that you do understand things correctly when you recognize this. Then Jesus gives you your dignity, your identity, and it's non-negotiable. When you come home, you are a son or a daughter of the Most High, Thrice Holy, Supreme God. And you get to call him Father. Do you see why Jesus' best friend wrote, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we might be called children of God. And I know there are some of you here who have been terribly wronged by your earthly father. And I mean wronged in a severe way, abandoned, abused. And if that's you, I am so sorry. And if it's caused you to run from your heavenly father, then I hope God will give you the grace to envision the healing reality of this father who extends dignity and identity. The very two things you will need most. If you've been harmed by your earthly father, he extends those two things to restore your relationship with him and with others. So, so far, we've been saying that Jesus is painting this picture of God, a father who removes obstacles for his children, a father who restores relationship with his children. And lastly, he's a father who relinquishes his rights on behalf of his children. In the face of the younger brother who demands his rights, the father gives them up in an even greater degree. Verse 20 says, while he was a long way off. You get the idea that this father was kind of in the habit of looking. He's in the habit of looking out there and he sees his son while he's still a long way off. And then it says the father saw him and felt compassion. What? And then he ran? What? This would have been culturally outrageous, unacceptable, as a matter of fact. He would be casting aside all of the dignity and prestige due to him because of his position as patriarch of the family. I mean, listeners would have quit thinking about this wayward son stumbling home and all of their mental attention would have turned to this father who's 
lifted up his gowns and shown his legs and run all things that were just culturally uh, unacceptable at that time. It would be like if a CEO was eating lunch at the club with a bunch of very distinguished guests and he keeps keeps looking out the window and then all of a sudden he bursts out there he is and he jumps up and he shouts in the club dining room where there is no shouting you know plates rattle and then he starts running and screaming i'm coming i'm coming and he runs through the club dining room which you are not supposed to run in and he bursts out the door and starts running to his wayward son that he sees in the distance and, and all the people in the club say, there, there he's going to his son, that, that son that we always talk about, always behind his back because it's a real embarrassment to him. You know, and all that's going on, but he ignores all of that. He ignores all of that because he takes on his son's shame. He also takes on his son's debt. He kills the fattened calf. He orders a party that likely would have included a community of guests. According to the law, he could have had his son stoned. But instead, he does just the opposite. He celebrates with music and dancing. Surely this would have been a costly event. And in addition now, he's got his son back, but he's got a third less of his property and wealth that he had before. We don't hear anything about that now. Now we simply celebrate because the son was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. There's only one path to God. It's not through your righteousness, but it's through his outrageous, costly forgiveness. This son had no chance to clean up, to cover up, to make up. You see, when you try to earn God's love, you cut yourself off from understanding grace. It's like recognizing that you need water from a hose and then going and cutting off the end of the hose to try to take the water with you. You know, the very work you did cuts you off from the source that you were trying to get. Now, the younger brother here is probably going to have to address some issues with his father resulting from the decisions that he made. But now he can do it in the context of a relationship because his father relinquished the rights to cut him off. And you'll notice one thing about the father as he speaks with both sons. Is there something that he repeats twice, something that seems very important to him? He's the only one who sees it. It's this idea that he he was lost and he's found. He was Dead and he's alive. The father seems to have this understanding of the magnitude of what that means. Because I don't think we understand the scope of the debt and the shame that we've caused. I can remember sitting in Jaron Barr's class uh, in seminary and him telling us that we we're going to write a paper on uh, the deepest, darkest sin that we struggle with in our lives. How's that for an assignment? And he wanted us to do this because he knew that we were going to be pastors, or most of us, and he wanted us to get comfortable talking about 
exposing our sin because he knew we were going to encounter all manner of sin as a pastor. And so we had to become um, better at articulating our own. So I wonder what you would write about if you were given that assignment. And see, as we were wondering what we would write about, he continued and said, this is going to be a very difficult assignment. And you're really only going to scratch the surface because in truth, you have no idea how wicked you are apart from the grace of God. And I was mildly offended by that. But that's just because I'm prideful. And the more I thought about it, he's right. If we could pull down the screen and play a video of all of your sin, of every errant thought, of every deviant behavior, it would be overwhelming. The shame, the debt, it would crush us. And so the father relinquishes his rights to hold it against us. And he takes the sin and the debt on himself. It's a debt that only he can pay. So here in Luke 15, Jesus tells us a story about a father and two lost sons. And we must adopt this picture of God. Because what comes into our mind when we think about God, it's the most important thing about us. It affects everything. So picture this father removing obstacles of sin and legal demands that stand between him and his children. Picture this father who restores relationship with his children, giving them more dignity than they're able to steal, renewing their identity that they reject. Picture this father who relinquishes his rights by taking on his children's debt and shame so they can enjoy fellowship with him. How can he do all that? Well, back to Deuteronomy 21. I wonder if anybody turned there during the sermon. If you did, you may have noticed that right before Deuteronomy 21:18, the verses that we talked about that talk about how to respond to a rebellious son, the verses just before that talk about how a father should distribute his inheritance if he has two sons. You know, older son gets two thirds, gets more responsibility. Younger son gets a third. And then Deuteronomy 21:18, we have the verses about uh, how to respond. To a younger, to a, to a rebellious son. And then what comes right after that? That's where Deuteronomy explains that a man hanging on a tree is cursed by God. So Jesus is bringing these ideas together here in Luke 15. And he's covertly pointing ahead because there's going to be a man. Hanging on a cross, taking the curse of God, removing that obstacle, restoring the relationship and relinquishing his rights and becoming sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That Christ community is our heavenly father. Let's pray to him.